Welcome to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Just ahead on today's show, supporting college students who are also parents. We'll speak with Grambling State University about opening a child care facility to serve those students while also training future child care professionals on campus. Also, we're going to talk about the history of Freemasons, Oddfellows, and other fraternal organizations in New Orleans. But first... Louisiana is sometimes referred to as America's wetlands. The state's abundant wetlands are the source of a billion-dollar fisheries industry and a critical buffer against hurricanes. And now, researchers are looking to turn the marsh's muck into gold by using it to offset planet warming emissions. But, as Hallie Parker from the Coastal Desk reports, the road won't be easy. Tucked next to Port Fouchon, a major oil and gas seaport, sits a salt marsh covered in deep green mangrove trees. It's here that coastal ecologist Tim Carruthers and his team with the Water Institute of the Gulf conduct their fieldwork. From time to time, we'll be crawling around on our hands and knees underneath the lowest branches of the trees just to try and find our study site because these mangrove trees are so uncharacteristically large. These mangroves are a new focus of Carruthers' research into something harder to see carbon dioxide. His team is looking into whether Louisiana's salt marshes can act as carbon sinks, pulling carbon out of the air and storing it in nature. Using a little something called photosynthesis, mangroves and marsh grasses breathe in the carbon dioxide, combining it with water and the sun's energy. And then it turns it into essentially a a simple sugar. And so that's then stored within the plant along with the carbon. Then that carbon will be broken apart and it'll be made into leaves and stems and roots. But they're still figuring out just how much carbon can be stored in the mangrove's trunk or in marsh grass's long, deep root system. Carruthers' team has been freezing mud to find the answer. The researchers basically stick a pipe in the ground, pump in liquid nitrogen, and pull out a sample. Uh, What we like to call a sediment popsicle. Their research tracks how quickly that carbon-rich material builds up. Because the faster that happens, the more these marshes could one day be worth. Eventually, the Water Institute and the state hope this research could help create a new market for building marshes to offset carbon emissions. There's still questions about the feasibility of carbon markets, but I think you're seeing an increase in interest from a lot of states. That's Isabel Engelhardt. She works at the governor's office of coastal activities, helping to lead the state's efforts to fight climate change. Carbon markets aren't a new concept. Companies build carbon-absorbing habitats to offset their own climate pollution in exchange for credit from a government body. You already see this with forests across the U.S., not marshland. But Inglehart says it's possible. Natural sequestration is not going to be the silver bullet for Um, reducing our statewide emissions, but it could be a big part of it. A market for marshland could add a new way to pay for rebuilding Louisiana's sinking coast, which is going to be expensive. Brian Lazina, the chief of planning for the state's $50 billion master plan that guides coastal restoration, says they're trying to answer a lot of questions. Is this going to be a viable market? Is this going to play a part, hopefully, fingers crossed, in the state's uh, funding of the master plan. But so far, the answer is no. For one thing, at the same time plants store the carbon, bacteria in the marsh burp up another greenhouse gas into the atmosphere, methane. So the return on carbon storage over decades is a fraction of the cost to build the marsh. 
It's still early in the research, though, and Lazina is hopeful. Currently, it looks promising. We just want to make sure we do this responsibly on there and get to a good endpoint. But it will take a lot more sediment popsicles to figure out. In New Orleans, I'm Hallie Parker. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Grambling State University in North Louisiana, along with eight other historically black colleges and universities and travel colleges and universities across the nation, recently received a $75,000 grant from the Aspen Institute. That grant will be used to help support student parents on campuses, people going to school who are also parents. And for Grambling, that means reopening the campus's Child Development Center. It closed in 2009 due to a lack of funding. Carol Alexander-Lewis has more than 20 years of experience working in the education field as an adjunct professor, program director, consultant, and speaker. She's serving as consultant for Grambling and administrator of the school's new Child Development Center. She joins us now to talk about what this means for Grambling and other HBCUs. Carol, thanks for being here. Hello. Thank you for having me. Carol, tell me about the unique needs of student parents. What are some of the obstacles that they face, and how can you ensure that this child care center not only helps them come to school, but stay in school and overcome those obstacles? One of the most prevalent challenges or obstacles that student parents have in their matriculation period is child care, high-quality, adequate child care. So this opportunity to provide high-quality child care for their children while they're in class. And so one of the very exciting opportunities for the grant recipients is the fact that they'll be able to receive high-quality child care on their college campus while they're in school during their class. And so this addresses one of the primary obstacles that students generally express um, is the transportation time, getting back and forth to class, um, the comfortability they're able to come into the child care setting on the campus. So they feel more comfortable and they're able to attend class on a more consistent basis without the mental burden of worrying about where their child is, how far they are from school, how long it will take them after they leave class to get to their child's care. Many of these challenges are uh, alleviated with this type of opportunity. Yeah, going to college is stressful enough just in itself without um, worrying about taking care of another human being. Now, tell me about how this facility will serve the children. We're talking not just about babies, but about older children. Can you tell me about some of the opportunities to play and learn that they're going to have? Yes. So the center will service children from six weeks to five years. Uh, Our goal is to expose children to high-quality early literacy experiences and really focus on the newer aspect of STEM, which is STREAM now. So you'll have science, technology, reading, engineering, art, and math. 
This fund that provided the grant will specifically help Black and Native American students. Why do you think that's important, that this grant is specifically for these schools and serves these communities? Yes, it speaks to the resources or the lack of resources that, in many instances, this audience tends to have. Uh, The challenges of financial obligations, including tuition, books, fees, are coupled with the challenge of child rearing. And so that's a actual additional challenge financially um, that this audience seems to to need more assistance with. Research has proven that out that this grant is attempting to address uh, with this specific audience. We're speaking with Carol Alexander-Lewis, an education consultant and speaker, currently spearheading Grambling State University's new Child Development Center. I know you previously served as director of the Delgado Community College Child Development Center. What did you learn during that experience? What are you taking with you from that in your new role at Grambling? Well, I learned that this child care ecosystem works extremely well when It's located on a college campus that is involved with feeding into the child care system where the education department feeds into the child care center and the child care center feeds into the student body. And then that student body feeds back into the department. It develops an ecosystem that's very positive. Uh, The faculty are able to come over to a learning lab on their campus. They're able to have more of a buy-in. I'd sort of equate it to nursing students having a hospital that they have access to. You're able to come over and see your theories that you're teaching. You're able to see them in practice. The students are able to conduct their student teaching, their field experiences. So it all feeds into each other when it's supported in this way, when it functions as a learning lab. Um, what's the, the road look like in terms of your goals for the center, you know, 10, 20 years down the road? Wow. We, we really want to become a resource for the community itself. Uh, we want to teach teachers Uh, We want to help parents parent more effectively. How is it that you figure out that a student body at a particular university or or college will benefit from this kind of child development center? How do you find out that there is a need for child care on a campus? Well, that sort of ties into the Ascend Fund that you mentioned a little earlier. Um, Actually, a... An ASCEND grant essentially functions as a feasibility study. So the focus of our ASCEND grant was working with student parents and determining um, utilization of that child care center, what they would want it to look like, what the needs would be. Um, We worked closely with the Department of Consumer and Family Studies at the university So that work uh, actually laid the foundation for us to prepare a proposal for the grant that was competitive. And anecdotally, from your experience working with student parents, what have you heard from these parents? 
What is their experience like receiving this kind of relief with their academic success and having their kids get access to quality childcare? What's that like? They are extremely excited. They are overjoyed at the opportunity to have a child development center on campus. They've been extremely supportive, and they just can't wait for us to open our doors. Carol Alexander-Lewis is an education consultant currently spearheading Grambling State University's new child development center. Thanks for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. For centuries now, Freemasons and Oddfellows and other fraternal organizations have worked alongside the benevolent and mutual aid societies that are an important part of the social, cultural, and civic life in New Orleans on display now through May at the Historic New Orleans Collection, an exhibit exploring the sometimes hidden history of these organizations. To walk us through it, we have Jerry Honoré, a genealogist and family historian at the Historic New Orleans Collection. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So people might be familiar with the Benevolent and Mutual Aid Societies in New Orleans, but maybe not so much the fraternal organizations like the Freemasons or the Odd Fellows. What are some things that we may not realize about those organizations? Well, one thing that people may not realize about these organizations is that they are very, very old. They, they develop in the early modern period uh, in the British Isles. Uh, the oldest uh, and perhaps the best known fraternal order um, would be Freemasonry, which starts with operative, that is working lodges of stonemasons uh, who were working on the cathedrals, the manor houses, the castles in Europe. Uh, and over time, accept men into their craft, uh, into their fraternity, who are not working uh, stonemasons, but are accepted masons. And from there, you have uh, sort of variations on the theme with organizations like the Odd Fellows and the Buffaloes and uh, other uh, friendly societies, as the term uh, is is uh, used uh, uh, in, in the UK, uh, fraternal orders as we know them. Uh, throughout most of the rest of the world, um, all organized around a central ritual, uh, usually involving degrees, that is a system of uh, lessons or progressive steps that their members can can undertake that uh, impart lessons to them and that, of course, inculcate the general spirit of brotherhood and charity. So these fraternal organizations, as you mentioned, have a presence around the nation and around the world. What makes them unique in New Orleans? Well, in New Orleans, they are notable for their longevity. Uh, The first Masonic Lodge uh, in New Orleans was organized in 1752 when the city was just a few decades old, and it was uh, chartered by the uh, Grand Lodge at Bordeaux, France. So our history uh, in terms of uh, fraternalism, just like our history as a whole, um, really harkens back to our French origins, unlike most of the United States. Um, in New Orleans, of course, you mix the pomp and circumstance, the the pageantry of the fraternal orders with our processional culture and with jazz music, and it makes for some, some wonderful, wonderful uh, events, celebrations, and we're glad to have many of them documented in the exhibit. Speaking of those celebrations of that processional culture that you mentioned, what are some of the things we'll see at this exhibit? 
In the exhibit, we have artifacts such as aprons, uh, pieces of regalia that belong to Freemasons, uh, as well as uh, members of the Oddfellows and the, uh, the Elks that have been donated to the HNOC over time. We also have photographs of a lot of uh, public events. Uh, one that I particularly like is the National Gathering of the Knights Templar, and you have tens of thousands of these men making their way down Canal Street, and the street has been dressed uh, festively for the occasion. You also have pictures of many of the uh, lodge halls, as well as the fraternal cemeteries and fraternal tombs within cemeteries that dot our landscape. Tell us a little bit more about the course of history of these organizations in New Orleans. You, you mentioned it's literally a centuries-old history. Well, as I mentioned, Freemasonry has its start in New Orleans in the 1750s during the French period. Uh, It sort of goes underground, or perhaps they don't even meet uh, during the 40-odd years when New Orleans and Louisiana are under Spanish control, because on the heels of the Spanish Inquisition, um, Freemasonry, uh, long frowned upon by uh, the Catholic Church, um, is not is not permitted to to uh, to take place uh, within within Spanish Louisiana, but in the French territorial period and in the American territorial period, you see a resurgence of interest in um, Freemasonry. Uh, Governor William C. C. Claiborne, for example, is a Mason. When the Marquis de Lafayette comes to New Orleans in eighteen twenty five, there's a big Masonic celebration for him, and then we have the arrival of the I O O F, the Independent Order of Odd Fellows who grow rapidly in the 1830s and 40s. And then in the 1840s, you also have the arrival by way of AME ministers from Ohio of what we call now Prince Hall Freebasin. That is uh, the historic uh, uh, tradition or lineage of African-American Freemasons who go back to Prince Hall uh, and his lodge brothers in the city of Boston in the 1770s. We're speaking with Jariana Ray from the Historic New Orleans Collection about an exhibit on display at the museum now about the fraternal orders in New Orleans. What sort of stories are you telling about what these organizations have done for their members and for the community? Tell us a little bit about that. We utilize some of the more ephemeral objects, such as cookbooks that were published as a fundraiser for the Order of the Eastern Star, references to uh, scholarship funds and charitable uh, funds that were amassed by the members of these organizations to demonstrate what a crucial role they played in society before the social safety net that we enjoy now that really comes about only in the 20th century. Many people may not realize that in addition to their ritualistic work or degree work, which is which is central to, to their identity, they also provided their members with benefits uh, such as sick relief uh, when they were unable to work, uh, in an era when men primarily were the breadwinners for their families, uh, funeral benefits, uh, prescriptions, medical care, um, as well as, uh, in many instances, places to to be properly buried. Um, They provided, as a result of this, a lively business for undertakers, regalia manufacturers, printers, newspapers who publish large notices and obituaries, even, of course, the many brass bands that we've had in New Orleans because they provide music for the annual anniversary parades and uh, and other functions uh, of these organizations. The exhibit is called A Mystic Brotherhood, 
Fraternal Orders of New Orleans, and it's on display now through May 10th at the Historic New Orleans Collection. Jari Honoré is a genealogist and the family historian at the Williams Research Center at the Historic New Orleans Collection. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. From WRKF and WWNO, this is Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Time to check on Louisiana news so far this week following the inauguration of Governor Jeff Landry on Sunday, of course. For his first executive order as governor, Jeff Landry vetoed Louisiana's new graduation appeals process on Monday. As Aubrey Uhas reports, the policy was in place for just a few weeks. In his order, Landry said the process introduced subjective criteria for graduating and lowered standards. The appeals process was narrowly approved by Louisiana's Board of Education and took effect late last month. It allowed students to graduate even if they failed to pass mandatory LEAP exams. Instead, they had to meet other additional benchmarks. Truba Chavez is an educator in New Orleans. She helped craft the policy initially with English language learners in mind. Now that the appeal is no longer an option, she has a message for students who struggle to graduate. We know you're more than just a test score. We know you have such a bright future ahead of you, um, and we are not going to let anyone take that away from you. She plans to keep advocating for the policy. Louisiana is one of just eight states that still requires students to pass exit exams to graduate from high school, and the only one without an appeals process. In New Orleans, I'm Aubrey Uhas. In addition to addressing redistricting in a special session next week, Governor Jeff Landry also wants lawmakers to change the structure of Louisiana's primary elections. But as Molly Ryan reports, Louisianans don't seem to favor a change. Right now, Louisiana has an open primary. That means all candidates, regardless of their party, appear on the same ballot, and the top two vote-getters advance to the general election. Landry wants to change that system. He favors a closed primary where candidates of different parties appear on different ballots. He's asked lawmakers to take up the issue as part of a special session mainly focused on redistricting that's set for next week. But a new statewide poll shows a majority of Louisiana voters, 65 percent, don't agree with Landry. They want to keep the open primary system. And more than half of respondents said they would be less likely to support a lawmaker who wants to switch to a closed primary. In Baton Rouge, I'm Molly Ryan. And if last year felt hotter than usual to you, new federal data says it wasn't all in your head. Hallie Parker from the Coastal Desk reports 2023 was officially the warmest year on record for Louisiana. Over the summer, Louisiana experienced a four-month-long record-breaking heat wave. And it wasn't just the summer months. The vast majority of last year was warmer than usual, according to new data from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration released Tuesday. The data shows, on average, 2023 was the hottest recorded year in Louisiana. Four other states also experienced their warmest year to date, including Mississippi and Texas. In New Orleans, I'm Hallie Parker. And that's Louisiana Considered for a Wednesday. I'm Adam Voss. A thank you to Hallie Parker from the Coastal Desk, as well as Carl Alexander Lewis from Grambling State University and Jari Honore from the historic New Orleans Collection. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our assistant producer is Aubrey Purcell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Mondays through Fridays at 12 noon and again at 7 p.m. on this station. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Adam Voss. Thanks for listening.
Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health.